0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Able Voices Podcast. I'm Dr. Rhoda Bernard, Founding Managing Director of the Berkeley Institute for Accessible Arts Education, and I am proud to present this podcast featuring disabled artists and arts educators. We are inviting artists with disabilities to be guest hosts for the Able Voices Podcast. Today, you'll meet our next guest host, violinist and educator Adrian Anantowan. Adrian will host our next episode where he will interview a disabled artist. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Adrian Anantawan holds degrees from the Curtis Institute of Music, Yale University, and Harvard Graduate School of Education. As a violinist, he has studied with Itzhak Perlman, Pinkus Zuckerman, and Anne-Sophie Mutter. His academic work in education was supervised by Howard Gardner. Memorable moments include performances at the White House, the opening ceremonies of the Athens and the Vancouver Olympic Games, and the United Nations. Adrian helped create the Virtual Chamber Music Initiative at the Holland Bloorview Kids Rehab Center. This cross-collaborative project brings researchers, musicians, doctors, and educators together to develop adaptive musical instruments capable of being played by a young person with disabilities in a chamber music setting. Adrian is also the founder of the Music Inclusion Program, aimed at having children with disabilities learn instrumental music with their typical peers. From 2012 to 2016, he was co-director of music at the Conservatory Lab Charter School, serving students from the Boston area in kindergarten through grade eight. His work there was recognized by Mayor Marty Walsh, as a one in three impact award in 2015. Adrian is also a Juno Award nominee, a member of the Terry Fox Hall of Fame, and he was awarded a Diamond Jubilee Medal from Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II for his contributions to the Commonwealth. Adrian is the current chair of music at Milton Academy, the artistic director of Shelter Music Boston, and is an Associate Professor in the Strings Department at Berkeley College of Music. Throughout the year, Adrian performs, speaks, and teaches around the world as an advocate for disability and the arts. Welcome, Adrian. We are delighted to have you as the next guest host of the Able Voices podcast.
1: Thank you, Rhoda. It's an honor to be here.
0: Thank you. I'd like to start off by asking you to tell us your story as a musician. How did you start as a musician and how did you get to where you are today?
1: Absolutely. So, I think what the bio doesn't mention and is definitely very visceral to me when you see me is that I was born without my right hand. So, I don't have fully formed fingers, I don't have a wrist. And when people see me, they would consider me someone with a visible disability. And growing up, I always had a strong affinity towards music. I think that there were definitely accessibility challenges in learning an instrument in particular. I was in fifth grade and our music teacher all wanted us to play the recorder. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to do that because I wasn't able to hold all the, uh, or play all the notes with, with my fingers. So my parents started looking for different options. Uh, One idea was singing, but didn't have a great voice. Another one was trumpet, which seemed like a very practical adaptation, but it wasn't something that I really felt. I really wanted to express myself with that particular type of sound. So it wasn't until I watched Sesame Street, of all things, and I saw a man with crutches walk up on stage, and he had a violin that was on a chair that was waiting for him. He took it out, and all of a sudden, he played this incredible music uh, on the violin, and he was saying that like, while it was difficult for him to get up on stage because of his crutches and the stairs, playing the violin was relatively easy for him. And that representation alone inspired me not only to see someone with a visible disability like myself uh, engage in music, but also transform himself through this music as well. And that was my first journey, or I should say inroads into thinking about a string instrument in particular, the violin. The man's name was Ishak Perlman, who's like a preeminent violinist of our time. And I told my parents, I want to have that instrument. And of course they were like, well, we don't know how you're actually going to adapt this for yourself. So we got some help. So I grew up in Toronto, Canada, and we went to a rehabilitation hospital called Holland Bloorview. And we worked with the prosthetics department, where I had a lot of other adaptations made for me, like a myoelectric arm, which is an electric arm that opens and closes. I had like a swimming hand. So this particular adaptation was created for me specifically for the violin and essentially it's a plaster cast that acts as a way for me to hold the bow and i've started that journey ever since as a musician it was definitely a as best as possible uh, an adaptation that worked very quickly and all of a sudden it was an opportunity for me to have Not necessarily no challenges whatsoever, but the same type of challenges as other musicians, which is how do you get a beautiful sound out of a violin? How do you play in tune? How do you translate whatever is in your imagination to what you're doing physically and producing something on an instrument? So that really got me started at age 10, and I was very lucky to have great training and great motivation to practice, Mm -hmm. uh, which led me to uh, continue all the way up until college and then start a career in performance afterwards. And I still do that to this day, and the violin is still uh, a bit of a beast to try to manage. Uh, And at the same time, it's a journey that I've been so grateful and appreciative uh, to have as a musician and as an artist.
0: Wow. I love that story. Um, I love one thing you said just to underscore it because it's really cool. Um, You said that once that adaptation was developed for you, then you had the challenges that every artist, every musician in this case has. I love thinking about how that adaptation was so powerful for you in changing what your challenges are. And you now do work with adaptations for other folks. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So as I was finishing my graduate work in music performance and starting to do a lot of playing around the world, I felt like that was not the only thing that I wanted to do to visit a concert hall and then to leave afterwards and really not have a connection to community and especially a community that I felt very resonant with, which was folks who had accessibility challenges uh, the music, in particular uh, children. So I remember playing a violin recital back at Holland Bloorview, and all of a sudden I was exposed to guests and audiences who were children who had more uh, challenging disabilities than myself. Uh, I'm missing my hand and have some challenges around that. But we had uh, children with cerebral palsy, uh, spinal muscular atrophy, a wide range of of physical challenges that uh, they were visiting Holland Bloorview for uh, music therapy, essentially. And so I visited them and those patients and really got a sense of the technology that was being used within a music therapy context. In particular, there was an instrument that translated motion into musical notes in a virtual environment. Uh, We call this the the VMI, the virtual music instrument. And that type of technology was not only accessible, but it was dynamic in a sense that it could adjust to the needs of the user. Uh, So for instance, what it did was it created shapes on a virtual environment, and the child could see themselves in a webcam, and if they were able to hit a certain shape in the virtual environment using a particular motion, a musical sound would emerge. And the research has shown that the work and and physical uh, exercise that's required in order to sort of get strong or like increase flexibility, Uh, these are motivated in such uh, more intense and visceral ways when uh, you do it through the language of music and expression. So that tool in particular was just so intriguing to me that I said, well, we have this within a hospital setting. Can we find ways that we can enhance the software and, and think about... Uh, different use cases so we can bring it to the concert hall and, and music performance specifically. So I created an initiative, as you were mentioning, the VMI uh, program where we had a user who was a former violinist who became paralyzed uh, and had him use the violin sort of sounds on the virtual music instrument uh, to be able to collaborate with a chamber orchestra. And that entire process took about a year or so, Uh, but we were able to have him up on stage again, and and it was a miracle to him for him to Uh be able to express himself in a way that he never thought possible through the intersection of technology. So that really galvanized me to think, okay, how can I do more of this work? How can I leverage more technology or just different types of adaptations to help a wider range of students and performers have access into music and it took a while uh, to get there so i went to the harvard graduate school of education got a master's in arts and education uh, did an internship at a very incredible school called the henderson inclusion school uh, where about 30 percent of their students have moderate to severe disabilities And that really set the foundation for the music inclusion program, which is hosted at the Henderson School. And uh, we're figuring out different ways to uh, have their students access music in a way that uh, allows them to really redefine what an orchestra is. I think that when we see on stage an orchestra, we don't see a lot of folks, uh, at least on a visible level, with disabilities. And I think that when we start at this age and we're thinking about ways that uh, we're really shifting the training from very early age of who can be in an orchestra, I'm hoping that not only are we providing uh, a service that allows uh, students to feel included and to feel happy and joyful through their music making, but we're also shifting where our fields can be, especially in classical music which has had profound accessibility issues on a variety of levels. Yes. So thinking about it from the disability context is something that I'm excited to continue uh, working on and and advocating for.
0: Wow. Um, I love how cutting edge this is and how this really challenges the world of classical music in a lot of ways, um, which are, um long overdue and very much needed. Wow. That's very exciting. Um, I understand that you have a little music that you would like to share with us. Can you tell us about the piece that we're going to hear and why you chose it?
1: Sure. So this is a movement from a Brahms violin sonata. I have a particular affinity to the German romantics and I think it really just showcases like the different colors that I get on my violin, in particular, and really has a connection to sort of my passion for music in particular, which I want to be able to share with as many people as possible. Uh, the Brahms violin sonatas are really a staple in the, the classical repertoire, and hopefully Uh, When you listen to the music, you'll hear very much an aspect of my personality, too.
0: wonderful. I know that our listeners would like to hear about your music education. Can you talk a little bit about how you learned music? You said you were very fortunate, you had good training. Can we get into a little bit more about what that was like? And did you encounter any um, attitudinal or other kinds of barriers, even though you had the adaptation? I mean, was it all smooth sailing from that point? We're curious about that.
1: So my training was I think very pure in a sense that like there were no doctrines in terms of how to use the bow that my teachers could leverage because I was basically making it up as I was going. So a lot of the pedagogy centered around listening and listening to recordings in particular. So I mentioned Isha Prahman, he was my Favorite violinist, and I would get all these CDs of him from the library and just play them, and then literally try to imitate what he was doing with the sound. And I think that was important to me as a musician to have that freedom to just almost be in a laboratory environment as I was practicing, to find a way to imitate, but at the same time, incorporate that vocabulary once I had it into a new form. Of expression, I think that in terms of the attitudes and barriers, I was relatively lucky in a sense that, like, I think I already came in with a certain degree of musical proclivity, and I was moving very quickly, and and definitely uh, had a, a way of being able to uh, at least dispel attitudes from the very beginning i didn't even have to say anything i just had to play and then it's like oh okay then you're fine so i think that i was fortunate in that capacity that being said i think that the greatest challenges that i did have were very relational to myself like can i actually do this can i figure this out and can i trust in my own process Mm -hmm. in order to uh, continue growing as a musician. So again, it was one of those things where this is sort of where we all want to get in our music making, where we're really just focusing on self-inquiry because none of us know ourselves better than ourselves. And that personal relationship that I've shared with the instrument and some of those struggles hopefully come out in the final product as a way of continually refining my voice and my story uh, in a way that not only signifies, okay, there have been challenges, but also a lot of successes too.
0: I love the way you put that. I love thinking about making art as a self-exploration and, and the power of that um, And the journey of that in art I think is extremely important and something people don't talk about. Um, So I appreciate that. Uh, What advice would you give to a young musician with a disability?
1: I would say really lean into others who are there to support you. I think that as much as I was just saying that it is a very individual journey of self-exploration, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily alone in that process. I think that there are always people who are willing to help, but being able to trust in that support is useful and at the same time also discerning like what is useful support and what isn't useful support too. Sure. And and so I think that there is a a certain degree of advocacy that is involved in any type of music-making, educative setting. And I think that sometimes that advocacy rests within the musician or person with a disability. Sometimes it rests in that relationship they have with parents, friends. So it is complicated in its own way, but just to know that like, if you do Grow up with a disability and are doing things differently, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're ever alone. And you have your own community. And then you also have like a community of others who are experiencing the same challenges and struggles and really embracing this identity of having a disability in a way that is not a detriment, but actually something that is unique and special and one that is inherently going to move people because it is a unique story. So to use that to your advantage, who you are as someone who might be different is actually what you need to express all the time.
0: Beautifully said. So what are you working on now and what's next for you?
1: So there's a lot. I continue to think about ways that we can create more pathways of accessibility into classical music in particular. One thing that's really in my head right now that I haven't done yet is find different ways to collaborate artistically with other musicians with disabilities.
0: I've seen you do that. I actually attended a concert where you did exactly that about six months ago.
1: Exactly. So this was sort of like the first inroads into, I hope, will be a longer chapter. So about six months ago, I played a concert with a pianist who had a limb difference, and we played a Beethoven sonata and then a new composed piece of music where the composer also had a limb difference too. And and that was such exciting work because all of a sudden, like we weren't trying to necessarily conform into the norm. Or really sort of saying what is normal in the end and and what should be, uh, how can I say, exceptional. And an exceptional being not something that is like a confluence of all these things that need to happen in order to get there. It's like it just should be accessible from the very beginning. So I think that being able to create more examples of that through my artistic work will feed into the music inclusion program, for instance, feed into the advocacy angle uh, and really just demonstrate uh, what is possible uh, when as a joint community, uh, we're able to uh, make music together. So uh, my hope is that I would love to be able to create like a Silk Road type ensemble uh, where all the people come from different disability backgrounds Uh, maybe multi-genre work, and we just come together.
0: Love that. Love that. Um, I might have some artists to recommend to you. We need that representation so desperately. Um, That would be amazing. Absolutely. Um, Adrian, I want to thank you for spending this time with us today and for sharing your experiences and your music and your thoughts with us. We're looking forward to the episode that you will guest host. And thank you so much for being a part of the Able Voices podcast.
1: You're welcome. It's lovely to be
0: here. Able Voices is a production of the Berkeley Institute for Accessible Arts Education, led by me, Dr. Rhoda Bernard, the founding managing director. It is produced by Daniel Martinez del Campo. The intro music is by Kai Levin, and our closing song is by Sebastian Batista. Kai and Sebastian are students in the arts education programs at the Berkeley Institute for Accessible Arts Education. If you would like to learn more about our work, find us online at berkeley.edu/biaae or email us at biaae@berkeley. At that's l e e. edu.